Hi, everyone. We're going to replay one more episode from the archive. This one explores the relationship between humans and animals. We spoke with Sophia Williamson, who has since completed her PhD, exploring ways to improve slaughter transport for both the pigs and the humans involved in the process. Sophia is now a researcher at the Department of Animal Environment and Health at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Before we play this episode, I have two quick plugs for other podcast series. The first, if you like this episode, you can check out Table's Meet the Four Futures podcast, which we featured in this feed last year. And if you listened and liked that, I'd recommend checking out Barbecue Earth by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. They covered a different angle than us, looking at the intersection of geopolitics, climate change, and meat. You'll first hear the series trailer, and then the episode with Sophia Williamson. Thousands of Dutch farmers are rallying against the government on their tractors. With the southwest in the middle of a decades-long mega drought, states are facing the biggest water crisis in generations. It's a conspiracy worth millions beef-washing with the Amazon at its heart. Now, Jeff Bezos' Washington Post is telling you that beef should be banned. Beef, the food. People know what they want. We don't want to be eating insects. We want our steak. Animal agriculture stands alone. No other sector is so important to climate change, and yet so under-discussed by politicians and media. About a third of planet warming emissions come from our food systems, and meat and dairy production is by far the biggest offender. In this six-part miniseries, we take a closer look at the stories that lie behind meat, how it shapes our society, our climate, and even our geopolitics. Oh, and we should add, Just like climate politics isn't about blaming anyone who's ever put gas in their car, this podcast isn't about shaming anyone who loves bacon. It's about exploring how our food systems shape our societies and influence geopolitics, and imagining what a sustainable protein transition could mean for our world and our atmosphere. We also look to the future of meat, whether that's lentil burgers or steaks grown in a lab. We explore stories from around the world, from a farmer's revolt in the Netherlands to the giant hog farms of North Carolina, and even the UN's strange reluctance to talk about what meat production does to the planet. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hewan Park. And I'm Noah Gordon. And this is Barbecue Earth. Welcome to Feed, a food system podcast presented by Table. I'm Samara Brock. And I'm Matthew Kessler. Today we're speaking with a colleague of mine, Sophia Willemsen, who recently completed her PhD at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. So my name is Sophia Willemsen, and I'm calling from uh, Mullhytan, which is about half an hour outside of Örebro. Sophia's dissertation was called There's No Time to Rush. Pigs and Transport Drivers' Welfare and Interactions During Slaughter Transport. We first asked Sophia, how did she get into her PhD research? So I worked at the veterinary clinic. Basically, it was just cats and dogs there. Uh, I started to reflect on how we, we spend a lot of money and effort to keep some of the animals that we surround ourselves with uh, alive and well. And 
Then in the lunch break, we sat eating cheap meat from pigs or cows or chickens without really reflecting on that. So when, once I realized that we put our money where our heart is, so to say, uh, which is, it's natural, I think. But once I realized the big gap between how we relate to uh, pets and uh, production animals and how most people don't really have a relation to production animals at all, more than in the meal, I kind of wanted to uh, work more with that and started to look into different uh, educations where I could learn uh, how to prevent poor welfare in production animals. So why do you think there is this gap between how we treat domestic and farmed animals? I will try to keep this short because it's really complex. But uh, in the in the end, I think it all comes down to societal norms and belief systems, which uh, influence how we think about the different obligations that we have towards uh, other animals. And this also explains uh, how we can perceive uh, as specific species, both as food and companion, uh, depending on the context. And I th- think uh, pigs uh, are a good example of that, actually. But we have a tendency to categorize different things in our surrounding, and this often makes our lives a bit easier, I think. And also, um, this, of course, have historical cultural and biological reasons. So for instance, um, if we think about the biology of a pig, they are omnivores, meaning that they eat a variety of foods as we do, and they live in groups and they breed in captivity. And the same goes for poultry. So they have the right prerequisites to be domesticated by humans from the beginning. And then Although they might differ a lot from their ancestors, they still have the same behavioral needs. Often it's just the behavior that has been altered by the domestication process. And then it's, I mean, the cultural context. Uh, We tend to, as I said, sort different species into different categories. And this is also reflected in our legislations uh, because we have... Um, ethical implications, for example, are rec- recognized in the animal welfare legislation. And this can be seen as society's moral guidelines for how we interact with animals. But often we allow um, what is considered tradition and hence are to some extent purpose navigated. Um, so how we traditionally kept the animals when the legislation was initially implemented, for example, companion or uh, production reasons, influenced its content as it is today. So since the purpose with farmed species mainly is to make money, they often have less strict uh, protection than species kept from companionship or sports. So and this is although there's no research showing that, for example, there's a difference in how piglets and puppies are affected by early weaning, just to give an example of that. So it's complex and multifaceted. That's a great overview. I wanted to ask you about what is your relationship with pigs? Being on farms, seeing them every day, what is it that most people do not know about pigs because they don't interact with them as regularly? Yeah, I love this question. I think... um, to begin with, they are so much fun. Uh, I don't think people in general know that. Uh, 
and uh, it's it's fun to be around them. And if they have a positive experience of humans, uh, they also find us very fun fun to be around. So even though um, they know that there's no food coming up, uh, they clearly want to interact and be around us. And they have excellent abilities to learn. And due to like their mere size, here at the farm we have large pigs, and uh, and they are very strong. I often feel myself like we are more on the same wavelength than uh, what I experience with cats or dogs or sheep. How big are the pigs on the farm? So they are approximately between 100 and 250 kilos, maybe. So they have their own agenda. I think that's really clear when you have, when you meet a pig and interact with them. Uh, you can't really fool them because they know what you, what you think before you do it, kind of. I tried to click a train one of the pigs here uh, <laughs> and it, it uh, didn't work. Or it worked to begin with, but then uh, she was too fast for me. So she figured me out faster than I figured her out. And, and it was just no point to continue. <laughs> so we're going to move on to looking at where pigs and pig production fit in the supply chain and the broader food system. And we're going to be mostly talking about the Swedish context. So I'm wondering if, if you could paint the picture of what pig production looks like in Sweden and also how that compares to other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Sweden is a, a fairly small country, if, if you could say that, compared to, for example, Germany or Denmark when it comes to uh, produced pork. And we have approximately two and a half million pigs that are reared for um, for fattening or for pork production each, each year. And this sounds a lot, but it's just really a very small fraction of the total uh, number of pigs slaughtered worldwide. I think it's about a little less than 1,500 million pigs uh, slaughtered in the world. So it's uh, very large numbers. That's per year? Per year, yeah. So your research looks specifically at the working environment and animal welfare um, around issues of transportation of pigs to slaughterhouses. So can you walk us through what it's like to be a truck driver in this situation? Uh, so being uh, subcontracted by the abattoirs, the haulier companies where the truck drivers are employed, uh, they are kind of... Um, in the hands of, of this contract. So regarding amount of work and routines, this is not entirely up to them to decide. And um, often they get the next week's schedule from their manager, maybe a couple of days, one or two days only in advance, because the abattoirs uh, who buy the pigs from the farmers, they do their planning late in the week before. So that kind of sets the frames for, for their practical work. So they start the day very early and the first loading often is around three or four in the morning. And this is in order to keep the, to the tight time schedule. And then um, it's not uncommon that they spend the night in the cabin uh, close to the farm or at the farm. Um, and then approximately 45 to one hour is used for loading of about 150 pigs. So it depends a little bit. And then after about four and a half hours, they have to take a mandatory break of about 45 minutes. So they are really steered by the time frame 
And if it doesn't work well uh, during loaning for some reason, this could be uh, very stressful for them as well. Or, or if the weather is poor and it's uh, difficult to drive and so on. Yeah, and how is loading? I mean, I've seen about 37 of them. And all I can say is that is, uh, it differs a lot. So handling strategies varies between people or persons and also the outer circumstances. For example, how do the pigs respond to the situation? How the staff at the farm works? Or uh, the design of the loading area is, is very varying. Uh, and this, of course, affects pig welfare as well as their workload. And, and none of these uh, variables are really in the control of the tracker. So the physical and psychosocial working environment, uh, as well as pig welfare, varies considerably. What do you mean when you say psychosocial working environment? Uh, if I can give an example of uh, how, <laughs> how they are interacting with the farmer or the farm staff at the farms. We talked with them a lot about this. This uh, varies a lot uh, depending on the farm. So at some farms it, it works very well and at some farms the farmers sometimes even uh, try to um, hide pigs in the middle of a group that are not actually fit for transportation. So pigs that are uh, maybe uh, have an injury of some kind uh, they just want them to get up on the track. And then there are uh, conflicts could be conflicts, for example, and of course this is affecting their working environment uh, mentally, and it leads to increased stress as well because they are responsible. Once the pigs are loaded, they have the full responsibility for these pigs until unloading. So if anything happens or if a pig is injured during unloading, they could be getting a fine for this or or reported by the official veterinarian at the abattoir. And what does society think of pig transport drivers? I think there's an ongoing debate about live animal transportation, which definitely engages a lot of people. And um, in my experience, people tend to see this occupation as rather controversial. Uh, so I don't know, for example, how easy it would be for these uh, trackers to raise potential problems in the working environment in terms of getting support from the general public. And I guess the same goes for, for staff also working inside of the abattoirs. I think one interesting aspect of this is that the, uh, the gap between production animals and the consumers, I mean, how many have actually been into the pig farms and, and seen them or met the pigs uh, and so on. But the, the one time you actually uh, get in some kind of contact with them is if you see them on the road. So uh, I think that's another reason why uh, animal transportation evokes a lot of emotions because it's right there in your face. You can't like just blindfold yourself and, and pretend that it doesn't happen, uh, which I think is a common strategy amongst some consumers. To do this research, Sophia spoke with 11 pig transport drivers and had 20 of them answer a questionnaire, which is a decent sample size considering there are around 100 drivers in Sweden. And what did you learn from speaking with them? So uh, I, I love to talk to them and to meet them. And I think it surprised me that they were so engaged and wanted to learn a lot about pigs. They uh, spontaneously requested uh, learning more about pig behavior 
without me like uh, saying that I, I think it's important. Uh, and then it was so nice to like coming from academia with a lot of theoretical uh, knowledge and meeting them who works with, I mean, they are the ones who meet most pigs, I would say, than anyone else and have a lot of practical experience of different um, pigs from different farms. And just how we, we connected and, and could like uh, help each other out and create new knowledge in that process. I think that was um, so much fun. Yeah, I think the creation of new knowledge together with these stakeholders, uh, because I couldn't have done that myself. We created um, these uh, guidelines for professional handling of pigs uh, together with them. So they are really applicable. And I, I think that kind of collaboration is the future in applied research. You need to really uh, be aware of the practical knowledge. Sophia talks about one other part of her research, which is about increasing knowledge for the transport drivers on how to work safely and handle pigs in the right way. Because this is a large part of my research, we have, through uh, training, we have uh, seen that we can actually improve how the truckers handle the pigs. Uh, and in that process, we found that they want to learn more about pigs. And, and they can improve, and they do improve their handling. And in the end, pig welfare is improved when they get the right sort of training. Yeah, knowledge and education, I mean, it's, uh, it's really important in order to make uh, uh, decisions and to be aware of what you do and why. And, and this goes, I mean, down to that I think we really need to provide appropriate education of small children in animal welfare and food production. Because it's so much more difficult to change habits once they have been established, even though you get the knowledge later on. So it's an important aspect. Yeah. So we started with quite a vague question, but you gave two very specific examples. One being looking at raising the price of meat and then increasing and building awareness and education among the various stakeholders. So something I'm curious about as I'm listening to your answers is that some people would look at issues with animal welfare and decide that we shouldn't eat meat. And what you're advocating for is better standards around animal welfare. Can you sort of describe why you've chosen that route over another and why someone else might choose a different answer to that question? Mm, well, it's uh, it's not really reflecting my personal opinion. It's more reflecting my work as a researcher. And I mean, we have the food production system as we have today. And as I said, it's based on, on our democratic process. And I like the um, way of thinking about things like... I'm not sure if you uh, if you know about the serenity prayer, but I think it's really nice and applicable in a lot of different contexts. So I need to try and, and change whatever I can, and I need to accept what I can change. I mean, I I can't uh, I can't change the system, even though I I might want to, but I I can do whatever I I have in my power uh, to increase knowledge and to make the small adjustments that makes it a little bit better. And then I'm not sure if that's a good answer to your question, but that's just where I'm coming from as a person, I think. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. 
So you saw these contradictions in how different types of animals were treated and you decided to go back and study about it. And so we were wondering what you see as the role of research in increasing society's understanding of animal welfare and animal behavior. Mm, That's a big question. So, of course, science-based knowledge is highly important for policymakers to make appropriate decisions. So that's the short answer, that society kind of leans against the system that we have at hand. And I, as a researcher, need to provide good knowledge and research-based knowledge that we can kind of use when when we set the different policies. But I think there's a big challenge in communicating science in a good way. And I I have a feeling that research on farm animal welfare and behavior doesn't reach the public uh, through, for example, media in the same way as uh, pets or animals that I started to talk about, the, the ones that we have close to home. And this is also, I mean, I understand this. You are interested in in what you know and what you can relate to. But I think this gap between farm animals and how they are reared and and the general public or consumers' awareness about this actually kind of increase uh, the general engagement in these questions. And it makes it a bit difficult to communicate the knowledge as well. I mean, it's even more important for researchers who work with farm animals to be good at communicating their research to society. And I think one very good example of how this could be done is Per Jensen at the Linköpings Universitet. And he he have written a lot of, or several uh, good and, and easily accessible books about, for instance, farm animals' emotions and cognition and so on. But um, yeah, the role is, is highly important, I think. Suppose podcasts are another vehicle for wider knowledge dissemination. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think it is that impacts how farmers think of pig production and the food system the most? Is it the research that goes into it? Is it economy? Is it legislation or something else, perhaps? So, of course, it's a combination of these three. But I think currently economy and then legislation uh, is... is, um, mainly maybe impacting production methods the most. As I said before, uh, the legislation is in in ways um, purpose-navigated. So if we can't make an economic gain from the production, uh, I mean, that's just the the ground or the prerequisite, so to say. But uh, this is also frustrating, I think, in a way, because we have a large body of research now. maybe in the last decades, on farm species. So, for instance, how pigs are affected by rough handling and long-term stress and how this affects production in the end. And uh, to give a a more narrow example, mixing of groups of pigs right before transportation, it increases their stress. Uh, You know that they start to fight with pigs that they don't know to, to set the hierarchy. And we have known this for for years, uh, and that it's really bad for their welfare and also for the production later on. But um, it's still practiced today, uh, generally, that you mix pigs. And the, often the argument is that it would be too expensive to change 
it's too difficult, it's too expensive. But the knowledge and the information is right there. And I think there's a lot of, of similar examples of like this. So you've already gotten into this a little bit in terms of what what it would take to develop a more humane system for animals, for labor, for farmers. We're just wondering if there's anything else you would like to talk about in terms of what you think could help to develop a more humane system. What I really want to emphasize is it's a shame that there's a gap, that there's a large gap between consumers and the production animals for several reasons. And what's more important than what we eat, I mean, and <laughs> what you, you put into your body and how this affects the people who works with the production or the planet or the animals. And uh, we spend a very little amount of money on food today compared to how it was 20, 30 years ago. Another reason why I think it's sad <laughs> that we have this gap is there's a lot of positive aspects of interacting with these species that I think uh, most people don't know and will never experience. So like if you would know how it feels to be close to a sheep who just can't get enough of uh, your scratches uh, or how it is to know like a pig in person. I mean, it's um, it really makes it difficult, I think, to neglect uh, like the large scale uh, production that we have today. The the consequences of this production um, because they are there. And although we in Sweden tend to talk about that we are so good at many things, and I think we are. I mean, I really agree with that compared to to other countries, we we have come a long way, especially with pig production, I think. But still, we don't really consider like that pigs really want to, to put their snout into the ground. And I don't mean straw, I mean like the dirt and to use their senses. And, and they are really complex beings and we don't really acknowledge that. And I think it's difficult to understand that while this gap exists. We just have a few other questions that are more like big picture about power in food. Yeah, so this is another big, big, big question, <laughs> which is what is your ideal future for the food system that you study? So I guess you you want my personal opinion here, uh, of course. I think um, a food system that actually enables respect for each individual no matter species, and, and here I mean the, the chicken production, the broiler chickens uh, are a good example. It's, uh, it's so many individuals, but we, we, count, we don't count them. We don't like count the numbers. It's more kilos or tons per square meter. I mean, my ideal future would be where we actually eat less meat, but better. So to say, I don't think there's necessarily that that means that we can't eat other species, but I think that the respect really needs to be there and that we lost it somewhere along the way. Uh, also, I think in some terms, the respect for the people working in, in these productions, in the large scale productions. Uh, that's a short answer to that question, but I think you get where, where I'm going. I have one more question about 
power shifts in meat production, which is in the past, have there been shifts in meat production that have happened and how have those come about? Like something we could sort of look to as a something that we could replicate in this moment to shift meat production again. Mm. Going back to the broiler production, which I think is interesting uh, because it's a, a debate ongoing now uh, in media. I don't know if you've seen it, but... A, a couple of years ago, we actually banned uh, using Belgian blues uh, type of cows uh, due to ethical reasons um, because they have this, um, I think it's a genetic mutation. I'm on thin ice here, but and they grow really fast. And they also have a lot of difficulties, health problems and can't often give birth so um looking at the fast growing broilers which the debate is about today if there are similarities and it seems far fetched at the moment to actually ban these type of birds because they have a lot of health problems um due to the really fast growth rate if they live past the 35 days that they live now they have a lot of health problems uh, and, and can't walk after a few days. There's a similar ethical problem here. And we know that in the past, we actually have uh, been able to, in Sweden, make changes and stick to them. That's just one <laughs> really narrow example, but of course we can change. And I think it's just it's just one generation away, as I was talked about, like the habits people. I talked a lot about the this with the trackers during our training, like you need to be aware of your habits. That's step one. And then uh, it's really difficult to change them. It requires that you reflect on them regularly. And while you work, you need to be really uh, like there and and see what you are doing and that's not possible maybe if you are really stressed uh, then you get the, the more narrow view so to say um, but it's just like one generation away in the sense that if you don't get the habits to begin with uh, <laughs> it's not it's not an issue and yeah so it's sometimes it feels so difficult to change things but I think it's it's also really uh, easily done and it's it doesn't need to take a lot of a long period of time thank you so much (laughs) sophia thank you (laughs) nice this was fun that wraps another episode of the feed podcast a big thank you to sophia williamson for joining and to you for listening we'll link to her dissertation and other resources on the episode webpage which you can find in the show notes or through our website, tabledebates.org. The best way to support the show is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and to share your favorite episodes with your friends. You can stay up to date with all of Table's activities and get the latest news about food system sustainability by subscribing to our newsletter, Fodder. Table is a collaboration between the University of Oxford, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences, and Wageningen University. This episode was edited by Ingrid Reeser of Azote and Matthew Kessler. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Stay tuned for a new episode on power in a couple weeks.